The text for this morning's sermon comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And uh, a lot of the children are already on the move, just to let you know. Uh, kids ages uh, 3, 4, up through including kindergarten, can go on, head on back um, for, for their class. Um, I know, I know we say this every single, every single Sunday, but really, truly, uh, you need to have the scriptures in your hands, uh, so that you can look and see during this sermon. There's, there's some Bibles on the back table back there, um, you can grab, and there's a few Bibles, uh, even further back underneath the, uh, the table at the offering box. Those, those black Bibles on the back table, if you have one of those, the text is on uh, page 177. So, let's look now at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So I grew up in the era of the after-school special. Um, it's about a 30-year period, so you can take a stab at that. Um, you get home from school, you turn on the television, and then there's a bunch of 20-something-year-old actors playing teenagers who are dealing with teenager problems. And the topics usually revolved around something like peer pressure, drug use, or which girl to ask to the dance which, of course, reflects the deepest moral issues of our day, at least according to the smart people at ABC. And I don't really remember many of the specials, but one that really struck me was dealing with jealousy. So the special kind of went like this. There's two boys, they're friends, they're interested in the same girl. One boy sees the girl talking to the other boy, so both boys get into a fight in the hallway at school. And then both boys end up in the principal's office getting a lecture on jealousy. And the lecture amounts to the principal saying something like, are you boys really going to ruin your friendship because of something so small and ugly as jealousy? And both boys recognize that jealousy was not a good reason to fight. End scene. Moral of the story, jealousy is a bad emotion that can ruin your friendships, so don't be jealous. Well, the reason that stuck out to me, and I still remember it, is because at the same time that I saw that after-school special, I was also in confirmation class after school, and we were learning about the Ten Commandments. And right in the middle of the second commandment, God says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And I thought, jealous? That small, ugly emotion that ruins friendships? How could God be that? 
And of course, the real problem was I was getting my definition of jealousy from an after-school special. But it's not just an after-school special that defines jealousy in that way. Recently, I was doing a crossword puzzle, and the clue was just envy. That was the word. That was the clue, envy. There was an eight-letter space for it. J-E-A-L-O-U-S-Y, jealousy. But that's not correct either. You know, jealousy is not a small, ugly emotion that ruins friendships. It's not just another word for envy. But that's often how we use it. It's interesting, though, how quickly the definition can change. Because only a hundred years ago, about, jealousy was considered a proper character trait. So I was reading some historical trivia, and I came across what uh, U.S. President Warren G. Harding said was, and he said, this is the best thing I ever wrote. Now at the time, President Harding was a newspaper editor in Ohio, and as an editor, he wrote an obituary for a dear friend. And as I was reading that, there was one line that struck me. Harding said that the deceased was, quote, Loving and loyal with the jealousy that tests its quality. And loving and loyal sounds great for an obituary. That's something you'd want to say about someone. But the second half, the jealousy that tests its quality. Only a hundred years ago, the test of loyalty and of love was jealousy. How did President Harding know that his friend's loyalty and love were genuine? He said that there was an appropriate jealousy that tested it, that proved it to be a true quality of his friend. So jealousy was a good trait. So good, in fact, it was appropriate for an obituary. And so when we come across this statement in the middle of the second commandment, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We are hearing about God's character from God himself. And it is evidently so important to his character that he is jealous. It's evidently so important to his character that it even serves as a reason for the second commandment. But before we look at God's character, that he is jealous, and we look at what that means more. First, we're going to look at just the meaning of the second commandment. And then we will look at God's character, which serves as a reasoning for the second commandment. So let's start by looking together at the meaning of the second commandment. And I'll read again the portion of of the text that is the command itself. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, a month ago, when I was preaching on the first commandment, I said that it, the first commandment, is the foundation for the other nine. And so, by way of reminder, 
The first commandment teaches us to only worship the Lord our God as God. And now the second commandment teaches us how we are to worship the Lord our God. Namely, the second commandment forbids the use of images in worship. And just as a little aside, it doesn't say, the, the word idol is not used in this text, but that's, it's the same thing, images or idols. Um, or what I should say is, an idol is always an image, but images covers broader. So, so whereas if we shorten this to just saying, don't commit idolatry, that's true, but there's more contained. So I'm going to continue using the word in the text, image, but just understand that idol is, is contained in this, in this word, image. So it says we are not to make a carved image. And, you know, other translations might say a graven image. The idea is of an object that has been shaped through craft, through carving, through metalwork, through artisanship. Human hands have shaped this object, right? And the idea is it's been shaped into any shape. It, it doesn't matter what it might look like because, and God makes this clear by the, the next words, when he says, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. That's a, that's a three-story way of speaking about the entire creation. You have heaven above, you have earth beneath, you have the waters under the earth. That contains everything that exists. And so, when God says, don't make a carved image or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, earth beneath, waters under the earth, that means that don't make a carved image of anything that exists. It's all, it's a whole gamut. Everything is contained in that three-story way of speaking. So don't make an image that looks like anything in all creation. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't make art. doesn't mean that we can't carve wood. doesn't mean that we can't do something with craft. Because even the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, contained carved images of cherubim. And Solomon even filled the temple with, with carved images. 1 Kings 6.29 says... Around all the walls of the house, he, that's Solomon, carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. And the house here is God's house, the temple. So the command is not against the making of images, not against the making of something that looks like anything else, but rather it is against the use of images in worship. And that's made clear by the last line of the command here, which is, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So the second commandment forbids directing our worship to or towards an image. So not only are we forbidden from worshiping false gods, which is contained in the first commandment, whether through graven image or 
other means of idolatry. We are also forbidden from worshiping the true God through the use of images. If you'll turn to Exodus 32, we'll see, we'll see an incident. Let's just back a few dozen pages. Exodus 32, we'll see an incident where we get an understanding of what's going on and why God hates the use of image, images in his worship. It's a large section of text, and I can hear the, the pages of Bibles turning, and that's amazing and wonderful. Um, so as you're turning there, let me give a little context. The people of Israel, they've, they've come to the foot of Mount Sinai after God has delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea, all the plagues, everything has happened, and they're, they're now at Mount Sinai. And God spoke to them, all the people, audibly. And, and what he spoke to them was the Ten Commandments. And the people were so afraid after hearing the voice of God speak from the mountaintop that they say to Moses, you go up there and you, you go listen to God and speak to God for us and we'll stay down here. And so they sent Moses up there and Moses goes up and he's, he's with God on the mountaintop learning from God all of his commandments. Now that's in Exodus chapter 20. By the time we get to chapter 32, where we're going to look at, Moses has been up on the mountaintop for some time. And the people have grown impatient. And now, we'll look at what they do as they're impatient. So chapter 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, pause. So notice that the intent of the Israelites here was not to make false gods to worship. They weren't making different gods. And that's clear based on how Aaron describes the golden calf that he made. What he says, he says, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then he also says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And you see in your Bible, it's all caps, Lord. So that's Yahweh. That's his covenant name that he revealed to Moses. So Aaron is telling the people, and the people are viewing this golden calf, as if this is the same God who brought them up out of Egypt, the same God whose name is the Lord, the same God represented by the golden calf. So the golden calf is meant to be an image used in the worship of the true God, 
So they look to the calf and they can worship towards the calf, and that is directing their worship to the true God. That's their intent here. Well, then how does God react to that? Well, if we keep reading, we'll see. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Okay. So the Lord is so angry that he is ready to destroy the people for their improper use of images in worship. But of course, Moses intercedes for the people. The Lord does not utterly destroy them. But it still should be clear from this incident with the golden calf that it's not just idolatry of worshiping other gods that the Lord is angry with. It's the idolatry of making an image to worship him with. He is jealous. An image worship provokes him to jealousy. So again, the meaning of the command, of the second commandment, it teaches us how we are to worship the Lord our God, and it forbids us from directing our worship to or towards an image. So now let's look, let's look again at Deuteronomy 5 and look at the reasoning behind the second commandment. The reasoning the Lord gives, he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I mean, the question could be raised, why is there an entire commandment against image worship? God only gave ten in the Ten Commandments. These are the big ten. And this image worship makes it on that list. Why is image worship so heinous that it warrants a place among the ten? And the Lord says, because the Lord is jealous. Not jealous like two high school boys in an afternoon TV special. But if we really want to understand what it means for the Lord to be jealous, then we need to, we need to get our meaning from the scriptures and not from out of the air that we're breathing, not from out of the prevailing way that we normally use the word. Because jealousy is not, as I've often heard it said by others, the little green-eyed monster, right? Jealousy is something much deeper than that. So, Jealousy appears many places in the scriptures. Get ready to flip pages again, because we're going to look at three places, all in the book of Numbers. You can start going to Numbers chapter 5. We're going to look at Numbers chapter 5. We're going to look at chapter 11 and chapter 25. 
and just look at three places where jealousy is spoken of in, in the book of Numbers. And Numbers is, comes right before Deuteronomy. It's the same people that Deuteronomy is written to. So the same idea is going on here. So Numbers chapter 5, I'm going to read starting at verse 12 and read four verses. Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife though she has not defiled herself, Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Now this is part of a larger section relating the way in which uh, a man and his wife would come to terms if he suspected her of, of adultery. There's a, there's, he's suspicious, but he can't prove anything. Nobody's seen anything. He's suspicious. And the Lord gives a way to, to mitigate that so that there wouldn't just be endless suspicion. Um, we don't, we're not interested in that right now. What we're interested in is the way the word jealous is used. So a man suspects his wife of being unfaithful, and then it says he is jealous of his wife. The spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife. So jealousy describes the feelings of a husband who suspects that his wife has been unfaithful. That's that's one thing to to think about, okay? Now now let's look at Numbers chapter 11. We'll start in verse 26. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. So here, it is Joshua, who now Moses says, is is jealous for his sake. Now Joshua is jealous for Moses' sake. Because there are these two men who are prophesying in the camp, and prophecy to prophesy was something that was special to Moses at that time. God spoke to Moses, and Moses spoke to God for the people. And it was a sign of Moses' authority. It was a sign of Moses' calling by God. And so Joshua, when he hears about these other guys prophesying, he's like, hey, put, stop it. Moses, tell him to stop it. They're, 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 they're taking over your place. They're doing the thing that's only something you should do. But Moses recognizes that these two men prophesying is is a gift from God. 
And Moses wants it to increase. But if we read carefully, we'll see that the problem that Joshua had was not that he was jealous. That wasn't a problem. Moses doesn't condemn Joshua's jealousy. What he says is, you misunderstand what's going on here, Joshua. The jealousy wasn't the problem. It was Joshua's misunderstanding of the situation that was the problem. Okay, one more place. Numbers 25. I'll start in verse 6. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them the man of Israel, and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So the context for this passage now is the people are wandering. That's pretty much the book of Numbers. The people are wandering in the wilderness. And currently they're wandering through Midian. And they're intermingling with the people of Midian. And the men of Israel are either marrying or committing adultery with the women of Midian. And through this, they're also worshiping the gods of the Midianites. And so the Lord speaks to Moses, telling him that there will be judgment for this. And so Moses and many of the people are weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They're, they're repenting. They're sorrowful over the fact that this sin has come upon them, that they have sinned in this way. And then what is described in, in the text, one of these people of Israel takes a Midianite woman into his tent. In broad daylight, in the midst of the judgment that is upon Israel, this man commits the very sin that has brought the judgment upon them. In the sight of the people who are weeping and repenting, this man commits the very sin that they are weeping and repenting over. He, he didn't care what he was doing was against God's commandment. He didn't care that there was judgment upon the people for this very sin. He didn't care that he was doing it right in front of those who were weeping in repentance. If we had time, we could go deeper into the depth of sin and what, that, what, what this tells us about the depth of sin. But suffice it to say that this man was deeply in love with his sin, so deeply in love with it that nothing else really mattered. And so Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, he can't stand it. Such an utter disregard for God, God's people. And so he puts an end to the sinning of the Israelite man and the Moabite woman. 
And through that one act, Phineas puts a stop to the plague and turns back God's wrath. The Lord says of him, he was jealous with my jealousy. And the Lord blesses him with a perpetual priesthood. It wasn't the intercession, it wasn't the weeping and the prayers of Moses or Aaron or the elders that turned back God's wrath. It was the action of Phineas. It was the action of his jealousy being jealous with the Lord's own jealousy. So then from these these three passages in the book of Numbers, what can we say about jealousy? Well, Numbers 5 makes a provision for when a husband is jealous of his wife, who he suspects to be unfaithful. Numbers 11, we have Joshua, who was the helper to Moses, his mentor from his youth. He's jealous for Moses because he thinks that Moses' honor and authority were wronged by those others who were prophesying. And in Numbers 25, we have Phineas being jealous with the Lord's jealousy when he looks at the Israelite man's blatant disregard for God, God's commands, and God's people in his sin. So what we can say about jealousy is that it is a, it's a, a feeling of strong personal connection within close relationships. Jealousy is the feeling of strong personal connection within close relationships. It can express itself with other emotions like anger or possessiveness, but jealousy is mainly concerned with the personal connection that comes from a relationship. And the stronger and closer that relationship, the stronger that jealousy. I notice that throughout these passages, jealousy is not itself bad. It's assumed a husband would be jealous of an unfaithful wife. And Joshua is jealous for Moses' sake. And Phineas is commended for his jealousy. So what then does that tell us about the character of God? When, when God says that he is a jealous God. The Lord's jealousy is his strong personal connection to his people because of the closeness of his relationship with them. Think about it this way. We do not get jealous of things we don't care about. We do not get jealous because of things we don't care about. The relationships in these three passages from the book of Numbers, husbands and wives, mentor and disciple, priest and God. These relationships are close, and the connections are strong. But no relationship compares to how close God has come to us. How strongly God cares for his people. And so the Lord is jealous because of how deeply he cares for us. So as we move to the Lord's table, which is set before us, there are two points of conclusion to consider. 
One, do not worship God by images. And two, worship God by his true image, Jesus Christ. So one, do not worship God by images. If a man were to go off to war and had to leave his wife for a long time, we would not think it strange for his wife to keep a photo of him by her bedside. That would not be strange. But it would be strange if she started speaking to that photo and acting towards that photo as if it were actually her husband. Because anyone who's ever met another human knows that a photo cannot substitute for who another person is. So how much more, then, should we understand that an image cannot substitute for God? All throughout the Old Testament, we see God's prophets telling his people that an image is not like God. The living God is the almighty creator of everything. And images, idols that are made for worship are inanimate, dead, and powerless. That's why we don't have paintings of God in in Protestant churches. That's why the stained glass windows aren't full of people. Because of who God is. But paintings and stained glass windows aren't the only way that we can sin against this commandment. It's not just a visual picture that you might have on a page or on a wall or in a statue that breaks this commandment. Anytime we substitute anything, something, for God, we are breaking the second commandment. When you say, either with your mouth or only in your heart, the way I like to think about God is, dot, 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 you're making an image. You're making a substitute. Well, the way I like to think about God is. Or when you say, either with your mouth or only in your heart, I really just can't get into worship unless the music is, or the sermon is, or the weather is. Whatever you fill in the blank is the image you are making to substitute for God. Jesus tells us in John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. So not by images, not by a statue, not by an idol, not by a picture. Because God is spirit. He's not like an image we make. But also not by our own preferences, designs, and desires. We must worship him in truth. Truth that he has given to us. In his word. 
So then second point, worship God by his true image, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this final point could seem to undo the whole sermon. If we are forbidden from worshiping God by images, then how in the world can I end this sermon by telling you to worship God by an image? And this is because of the majesty, the mystery of the incarnation. God is jealous. He will not have his worship made improperly by adding images into the mix. Because images cannot substitute for him. But Jesus Christ does not substitute for God. He's not a poor imitation. He's not a bad copy. Jesus Christ is truly God. In all truth and reality, Jesus Christ is God himself. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has made the unseen God known to us. Colossians 1.15, Paul writes of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So when we look to Jesus Christ, when we direct our worship to him, we are truly worshiping the true God. So don't say, again, either in your heart or with your voice, don't say the way I like to think about God is, unless at the end of that sentence is, as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And don't say, I really can't get into worship unless, unless it's directed to God in Jesus Christ, in spirit and truth. When we substitute anything for God, we are sinning against him, breaking this second commandment. I had a professor who would say, you know, the commandments don't really break. Um, Moses broke them when he threw them down and they shattered. But it's not really that we break the commandments, it's that we sin against them, and then the commandments break us. It's not something to be taken lightly. We can't take sin lightly because God does not take sin lightly. He visits the iniquity of fathers onto the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. When we substitute anything for God, we sin against him because God has no substitutes. But thanks be to God that because Jesus Christ is truly God and not just a substitute, because he is truly God, Jesus Christ is a substitute for us. God's jealousy 
his strength of personal connection with his people, his care, even his love, demands satisfaction for all sins committed against him. And Jesus made that satisfaction by dying in our place. And God raised him from the dead. Now the jealousy of God is not set against us in anger for our sins. We are not those who hate him, who have iniquity visited upon us for three or four generations. We are those who love him. Who he gives steadfast love to thousands. God's jealousy is now to us only fierce love. And that's what we see in the Lord's table. We see Jesus Christ, true God, substituted for us. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing when we receive the bread and the juice. Proclaiming the Lord's death. Having communion with the Lord. Right after this passage, Paul says, Paul warns us that we need to eat and drink in a worthy manner. And what does that mean? He says, discerning the body. What does that mean? It means that we are actually participating in the body and blood of Christ. Not because the bread or the juice become that, but because Christ is ours because he gave himself for us. So if that's not true of you, if you can't say, glory be to God, Christ stood in my place, died my death, lives my life, and I'm alive in him. If you can't say that, then go ahead and, and just stay where you are. It's fine. It, you don't need to come down here and, and partake. And also parents of, of young children, if, if they're still figuring this out, um, use this time to help them understand what's going on. But if they've made, made a, a credible profession of faith, if they can make that statement, Christ is for me, he stood in my place, then have them partake as well if they're, they're ready. This is for all those who have come to to Christ. Uh, if you're visiting, this is welcome to you as well. I'm going to pray. The band will come up and play.
and then we'll we'll come and partake. Heavenly Father, thank you that in your great love and mercy you gave your Son to be the substitute in our place. Thank you that you have revealed yourself in such a clear way. You've revealed yourself so that we do not worship you by false images, by false comparisons, by things that can't compare to you, but we worship you by Jesus Christ, who is truly the very image of the invisible God. Truly God. Thank you, Lord, that we can sing such things, not just that Christ has died for me, but Christ has risen for me. We can sing with the church that has sung for ages and ages and ages these songs, the glories of Christ. Would you help us, Lord, as we come and participate, that we would be, by your Holy Spirit, lifted up to communion with Christ in heaven. Even as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, that you have raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. May we have communion with one another as well, Lord, because we are united to Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.